Blue jean, baby. Oh my god. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Hot Takedown, a sports podcast from 538. This is a show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. If you were a listener of our previous iteration of the Hot Takedown pod, welcome back. And if you're new, we hope you like what you hear and subscribe. Today is March 26th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. How's it going? Hey, Sarah. How are you? Good. And on the line from Los Angeles is 538 sports editor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. What's going on, Sarah? How are you guys' brackets? Did they? Uh, did your brackets survive? Are they in tatters? I feel like no one's brackets are in tatters, right? <laughs> Unless they picked a lot of crazy upsets. I'm in 90th place. <laughs> Who did you pick? Oh, I had Yale. Belmont's one of those, <laughs> had gone way too far. Well, I mean, I got some right. I got my, my anteaters delivered. <laughs> did you have them beating Oregon, too? I did, actually, unfortunately. Well, on today's show, we're going to talk about the baseball season, which is finally, finally here. We'll kick it off with a look at free agency and talk about our MLB predictions. We'll also talk about the first weekend of the NCAA tournament, looking at a couple of stars who are likely to make their mark in the pros next year. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. But let's start with baseball because it's finally back and I'm so excited. Are you excited, Neil? Oh, yeah. Twi- <laughs> Twins Indians Thursday? Is yes, that, very. you got your eyes on? I can't wait. Instant uh, AL Central clash. Yeah. Is baseball both of your favorite sports? Mine rotates based yeah, on time of year. Right kind of, now, yes. Yeah, mine kind of does too. So you like whatever's on. Yeah. Basically, yeah. This I have a very uh, short attention span, Jeff. <laughs> this is perfect for me because my basketball teams uh, both crapped out of the tournament, so now baseball can start. Full it's attention. Perfect. It's perfect timing. Yeah. So we have real games on Thursday. Um, MLB will celebrate its official opening day, even though we had two we games We had games that counted last week. Last week, which is very confusing to Ichiro me. Ichiro will have played in the 2019 season. <laughs> right, but not after opening day. Right. Bizarre. Um, but that's that's okay. We're just glad it's back. But it's been a really busy end to the off season with big free agent contracts for Bryce Harper and Manny Machado. And in just the last week, we've seen a flurry of contract extensions from some of the game's biggest stars, including Tuesday morning, just now, when Mets ace Jacob deGrom agreed to a five-year, $137.5 million extension. Last week, Mike Trout signed a record deal that will keep him with the Angels, though it will likely cost him some of the money he could have made in free agency. Here's Trout talking at a press conference about why he is staying put in L.A. You know, obviously, a lot of talk about going back uh, east and back to Philly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think the direction of the, the franchise, that's, that was big for me. I think if it was going the other way, I would have had to consider, you know, going. Trout also told The Athletic that he saw what Bryce and Manny were going through to get their free agent contracts. And that was a red flag for him. Neil, was that a fair concern for Trout? You know, I'm not totally 
sold yet that it was a fair concern for Trout specifically, just because, as we've talked about before, he's such a transcendent player that it yeah. seemed like if he hit the open market, and I know that that wouldn't have happened for another two seasons. I think he would be 29, so maybe that's part of the, the consideration there. But it seems like if he hit the open market, someone would have backed up a Brinks truck to try to get him. The Yankees, the Phillies, you know, even though they signed uh, Harper, there was like open you know talk uh tampering uh, style talk about maybe getting him <laughs> i thought uh, only, only the lakers the lakers <laughs> could do that yeah well ta- tampering is all the rage these days right. um but but i think for anyone sort of below trout and that includes some of the other guys that sign like your alex bregman's and your paul goldschmidt's and your chris sales and blake snell's <laughs> and justin verlander's and all these guys there were a lot in the last week um yeah i think that that is sort of uh, a consideration they saw what was happening uh they saw how long it took for these guys to get money that probably would have uh, poured out early in the hot stove process in previous years. There's like one section of this discussion in which you discuss these things in like real world terms right. and it's mind boggling the amount of money. And then at the other side, you discuss these in terms of the baseball market and the fact that uh, the, the team owners have been making a lot more money and franchises, you know, val- values are going up uh, every year and there's a lot of TV money involved. And so your conception of what's a bargain and what the going rate for things are um, changes a little bit when you frame it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and nobody's crying any tears for Manny Machado and Bryce Harper. They ultimately ended up getting the the huge, you know, three hundred plus million dollar deals, but it took a lot longer than expected. And uh, there's some guys still out there uh, that don't have deals yet, and so. Um, that's this is exactly what this was was the guys taking the security of the longer term extension and giving up dollars to to make that happen. Jeff, we've talked a lot about the potential crisis and free agency right now in MLB. What do these kinds of extensions mean for future free agents? Well, I mean, there's just not going to be really future free. I mean, you look at next year's class. I mean, I think it wasn't it supposed to be Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt and all these guys, and really all of them are under extensions. I think the only ones who are like holding out are Garrett Cole and Trevor Bauer, who might like represent the entire market, basically. But I mean, I, I think the more significant thing is is something. You look at like Craig Kimbrell right now. He doesn't have a contract. I mean, he doesn't. He's not on a team in the season starting. Um, and I think if you're if you no longer have, I mean, you don't, you have teams no longer building through free agency. It doesn't, I don't think it's really viewed as a viable path to success um, anymore. I mean, I, I think, you know, obviously the Brewers and we talked about this and some, there are exceptions on teams that have had success with it recently. Um, but also it's just like the, the way the game is, is sort of shifting back towards 20 somethings. I mean, the days of like, going out and getting, um, you know, we're just going to go get Jason Giambi and Kevin Brown and Randy Johnson and all these guys who, um, (laughs) I mean, it really was a product of, you know, the steroid era when we had guys, you know, performing very, not to say any of those guys did steroids. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) But um, you had guys performing consistently through their 30s, and we just don't see that anymore. Um, so if you're a young player, you like look at uh, Luis Severino on on the Yankees. He signed an extension, mm-hmm. and then he's got some sort of rotator cuff issue and something like that. If he didn't sign that extension and he hasn't hit free agency yet, I mean, all of a sudden that's like your livelihood you're risking there. So if you don't have this huge pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, 
you know, why risk it? Go with, go with the, the safer measure. Jeff, is this where we make the uh, hot take case that steroids were good for baseball, uh, or at least good for the, you know, on the player side and good for free agency and, and good for, you know, players to be able to maximize their earnings? Is, is, is that, you know, were we wrong? I'm not going down that Were we wrong? I think you could, I mean, look, I, I, I know that, um, you know, we should say to all the kids out there listening, don't do steroids. <laughs> don't, they do, can, don't do steroids. They can do bad things to your body and you shouldn't do them. Look, 12-year-old Jeff doesn't get to enjoy Todd Hunley hitting 45 homers for the Mets. <laughs> you know? Well, that's what I'm saying is, you know, I think it changed the um the, the the aging curve dramatically and therefore, you know, you have this baseball system that's been in place for a long time, but I guess they were even during the steroid era, um the, the players were fine with it and that was largely when a lot of the concepts of the current collective bargaining agreement were sort of put into place. Uh the players were fine with the system where okay, you know, you break in and you make this crazy low amount of money, this mm-hmm. near minimum salary type thing. Which is like, what, 500000 Yeah, or something <laughs> like that. And so um, the idea was, you know, they'll underpay you early and then eventually you'll hit your, uh, your free agency payday and they'll sort of overpay you late, but that's okay. And they can kind of justify it because the aging curve is what it is uh, with, with players playing deeper into their 30s, um, with, perhaps with the aid of, of chemistry. Uh, <laughs> but now that that's no longer true, I think it, a lot of things have kind of come crashing down at the same time on free agents, including also, I think we have to talk about the influence of sabermetrics in front offices, that the, a better understanding of the aging curves and a better ability to pick up that they did change uh, has has also played into it. Front offices of MLB teams uniformly now are like, we're paying you for what you're going to give us, not what you have done. Mm-hmm. And that's a big departure from in the past. You had you had teams that were run by, you know, ex-players or they were run by like, you know, oil men, you know, (laughs) you know, owners and like a bunch of people that were just they weren't trying to maximize uh, profit out of teams that they viewed teams almost like owning a piece of art where Mm -hmm. it's like a prestige thing to have. And it would be nice if you could maybe, you know, get, uh, get some kind of profit off of it at the end when you turn the team around. But. Right now, it's about you know winning ball games and and b- having the status of owning a team, uh, and so you're going to pay for stars that have done things in the past, even if they aren't going to do things in the future. But now you have a lot of these bean counter types that are like, no, we're actually being very strict about who we pay, how much we pay them. Everybody's kind of playing from the same playbook, and they don't. There aren't these outlier misestimations of how good someone is. Like Craig Kimbrell is trying to mm-hmm. get. Uh, a good amount of money, but teams are not really in the market for paying that much money for an aging closer. And this is just not the right time to be Craig Kimbrell and to ask for that. You know, the market has changed and it's left some people out in the cold. Well, I think this is really interesting in the context of the next collective bargaining agreement, um, which will kick in for the 2022 season. So free agency right now, you have to have uh, accrued six years of playing time for so many players that will put them over the age of 30 by the time they can even hit free agency, particularly with the way teams have been manipulating start times for players. Teams would never do that. No, no. They're always starting the season with their best 25 players. For sure. Vlad Guerrero Jr. just isn't ready. Well, now he's hurt, so they get a pass there, apparently. But that's got to be an issue, right? The players, I think, have to argue for earlier free agency um, in some way to be able to protect themselves so they can get paid. I think at the same time, the players union is probably 
very concerned about their older players not getting work. I mean, that's really what their all players unions are there for is to sort of protect the the job uh, prospects for their veterans. Um, it you know, if anything, there's a long history of sort of uh, not standing up for the younger players' salary and all that. We've seen this in the NBA, you know, endlessly. It's going to be an interesting negotiation. It seems like a strike. Uh, if I've seen this a couple times, like, <laughs> I think these CBAs are hard yeah. in general, even without these kind of factors, even though these factors always exist. So it, it will be interesting to watch unfold. Yeah, we've been pretty lucky that we haven't had a work stoppage in... 24 years now so yeah that does seem like it could possibly be on the horizon well of course something to look forward to. yeah exactly <laughs> so we've got that going that'll for be us. great <laughs> um of course what matters to most to baseball fans is how all of those stars free agent or otherwise can help our teams win the 538 mlb predictions will be released wednesday neil who do we think has the best chances of making the playoffs this year this system uh basically blends together the the projections from a lot of other respected sources so fangrass baseball prospectus pakoda mm. um and also clay davenport who is uh, a longtime uh baseball prospectus alum uh and then we mix it with our elo rating uh, from the end of last year regress to the mean and kind of turn them all together to kind of spit out this projection. And so we have a former recent World Series winner as our most likely team to win the World Series this year, but it's not the Red Sox. They're actually only fourth most likely at 9%, but it's actually the Houston Astros uh, that we have at number one uh, with a 16% chance of winning the World Series. And then we have the Yankees and the Dodgers tied uh, for second behind them at 13% apiece. Uh, and then, you know, it kind of drops off to the Cleveland Indians below the Red Sox at at 8% and then the Nationals and then the Brewers and the Cardinals and the Cubs and Jeffrey and uh, my favorite team, the Mets down at 3%, which is probably 3% more than most seasons. (laughs) Where where are the the twins? Uh, Uh, The great Minnesota twins? Well, the Twins are tied with the Oakland Athletics, the Atlanta Braves. Yeah, the, both of those teams at, at 2%, uh, which is somehow lower than the Colorado Rockies' chances, which huh. is uh, interesting. That we, is, we'll have to dissect that. That with, uh, is interesting. The model output. What could that mean? Yeah. Um, so some of the teams that um, that big stars have gone to, uh, I'm wondering how they're doing. Uh, so Bryce Harper is now uh, Philly. How are they looking? Yeah, the Phillies, I think, are going to be one of the more controversial projections that we have. At 84 wins, uh, which is third best in the NL East, is an interesting, surprising result. Uh, But it becomes a little bit less surprising when you look at the fact that this team last year, they were 80 and 82. Mm -hmm. Uh, They only had a run differential of a 76-win team. And so, you know... Even a projection that has them leaping up to 84 wins is an eight-win improvement over really what their run differential says that they should. So it starts to make more sense. Uh, you know, you can add Segura and Real Mudo and Harper and still only, you know, improve by, you know, 10-ish wins. What about uh, Manny Machado and the Padres? The Padres are a really interesting team because they had been, you know, in the basement uh, for a while and they seemed like they were sort of tanking and, and they almost are like pouncing on their opportunity now, picking up Machado uh, and they made a few other offseason acquisitions. Uh, and, but 
our projections still don't think they'll quite be good yet this season. <laughs> uh, we have them down for 75 wins uh, this year, which is fourth best behind the Diamondbacks, which is also interesting because the Diamondbacks shed a lot of talent. They got rid of Paul Goldschmidt uh, and A.J. Pollock over the offseason. So you would think that they would kind of dip down, but maybe it's just part of a multi-year process that we'll see the Padres, who I should also mention they've got Fernando Tatis Jr. and a bunch of other prospects kind of coming up. They seem like a team on the rise. Maybe the Diamondbacks a little bit uh, on the decline. What do we have the Cubs down for? Well, that's another. I think they're the most polarizing team in any of the projections uh, going into the season. We have them for 84 wins, which is uh, third best in the NL Central, but only two games behind the Brewers, who are projected to be uh, first in that. So the Cubs still have a 23% chance of winning the division, 38% chance of making the playoffs. But at the same time, I think they won 96 games uh, last year. They obviously had that great season in 2016 uh, where they won the World Series. So, you know, it's a little bit of a disappointing projection and and the Cubs themselves uh you know Pakoda was the projection system that was lowest on them and I think it had them at 79 wins and that sort of made its way back to the Cubs and Joe Madden and Chris Bryan and Anthony Rizzo sort of uh you know complained about that and, and <laughs> said we'll prove them wrong and yeah do you're talking on the field guys sure we didn't even talk about the twins made the playoffs two years ago I did had a little bit of a down year last year but a little bit, as yeah. we wrote about <laughs> they seem like they could be a team that maybe potentially pushes the Indians uh, uh, and gives them a challenge for the first time in a long while in this division. Now watch them win seventy seven games. Yeah, please don't please don't <laughs> do that. Yeah, I I mean I'm excited for the I'm excited about Byron Buxton who is great seems, breakout in the spring poised for a breakout season. Are you excited about Nelson Cruz? I you know, I am. I they haven't for a while had a you know, a big bopper in the middle of the lineup and he could bring that and that is exciting to me. He could also be like last year's Logan Morrison and do nothing. So well, who, who can say? You know, this is a guy to bring it back to our other conversation about uh, performance enhancing drugs and the aging curve. <laughs> oh, no. He has done them in the past. So, you know, it, uh, who knows? <laughs> what? I don't I don't. Is it is it libel or is it slander when you say <laughs> things on uh, on the air? Definitely slander. <laughs> could be both. But he really is uh, an aberration. I mean, 38 years old and still having his most productive years. That That is unusual. I mean, he's no Fernando Rodney, who is <laughs> Who now. is the oldest? Pi- I mean, mm-hmm. is Bartolo 40. signed with anyone? Is- Bartolo has not signed with anyone, uh, as far as I know. So Though he'll show then. up in the... Someone will get hurt. He'll show up in, in the uh, Mets rotation. Yeah, it's looking like an exciting season, but um, but there could be trouble on the horizon between MLB and the players. So uh, my uh, encouragement to my team anyway would be to win right now because who knows what will happen in a couple of years. <laughs> Enjoy baseball while it lasts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's move on to the NCAA tournament. We saw some great games during the first weekend of the tournament, including three that went to overtime on the women's side and one on the men's. And we got two games each from the two players many expect to go one and two in this summer's NBA draft, Zion Williamson of Duke and John Morant of Murray State. Here's college basketball analyst Jay Williams on ESPN's Get Up discussing who will have the bigger impact in the NBA. Zion Williamson is the biggest celebrity in all sports right now. I don't think any GM will pass on him for the first pick in the draft. But John Morant's game potentially will translate to the NBA better. Neil, you've looked at how each has performed relative to others at their positions. 
is Ja the better prospect? <laughs> well, you know, I loved this take because we had done a live blog um, the day before of the first round games, mm-hmm. and our esteemed boss, Nate Silver, chimed in you know nate is always looking for an opportunity to be a troll Uh, and but he said even i'm not trolly enough to suggest (laughs) that uh john morant should go over zion williamson in uh the the number one pick and so i'm glad somebody else was out there to be like hold my beer (laughs) um and so but you know i want to kind of agree with this because zion is such a unique player Mm -hmm. that you can kind of spin it like ah six six kind of forward type that can't really shoot like is he really suited and then you look at the numbers they're absolutely ridiculous for him uh i think uh, he he set the all-time record with a a 41.6 player efficiency rating uh uh, for college um and and you look at you know he has the wingspan to make up for the height he has the athleticism certainly uh and so you know it seems like a little bit of a a hard take to defend Mm -hmm. Uh, i i think the only way that it does kind of uh come through is both of these guys hit all of the benchmarks that you're looking for. And with Ja, that's a little bit complicated by the fact that he has played in a lesser conference, right. lesser you know competition. But when he was in the NCAA tournament, he uh, certainly seemed like he more yeah. than belonged. He looked good against his <laughs> Big East competition, yes. that's for sure. Uh, and he has, you know, in his other games um, earlier in the season against SEC teams, both of these guys check off all of the boxes. It's just Zion checks them off more and, and like, sort of more convincingly and, mm-hmm. and by a wider margin. And the other concern to almost flip it around uh, on Ja is the history of guards being taken in the top five of the NBA draft recently has been surprisingly not all that great. Hmm. So, for instance, if you look at, uh, you know, there have been some hits for sure. Uh, Kyrie Irving, very successful. I've heard he's good. Yes. John Wall, Bradley Beal, Victor Oladipo. But as you go down the list, and this is this decade, you also have you know, your Markel Fultzes, your your Chris Dunn's, your your Dante Exums, Dion Waiters, these are guys that maybe if if uh John Morant turned into having their careers, uh it would be a little bit uh, uh of a disappointment. I, I it kind of brought me back around on someone like Zion where you have a retort to all of the potential complaints about him or the criticisms about him. And to be honest, we just haven't seen a player have this type of statistical production in recent college basketball. Right. Kevin Pelton, for instance, our colleague at ESPN, he has a system that breaks down everyone's um, college stats and tries to kind of project out NBA future uh, for those players based on their college numbers, adjusting for age, adjusting for a lot of things. And he found that basically the um, the only prospect in recent memory that had more convincing statistical output in college uh, among prospects was Anthony Davis. So it does seem like a little bit of a no-brainer. Do you buy into the fa- the idea that this is the kind of season LeBron would have had if he had gone to Duke for one year? Ooh. Oh, yeah. Well, so would he have gone to Duke or would he have gone to Ohio State? You you hear both. I think he. I, I don't think he ever really got close to a decision. I mean, I think people sort of assumed Ohio State, but definitely Duke was in the in the conversation too. Yeah, he and Coach K do have that like yeah. long standing relationship. Um, yeah, I totally think that you could see this type of season, especially since with Zion, like it's easy to look at the numbers and just have these numbers like wash over you. It's like. A 700 true shooting percentage? 
sure, fine. Like, <laughs> you know, and not actually even be able to kind of contextualize that. But when you watch him play, it also sort of stands out. Like, he's making these, uh, you know, thread the needle, uh, fast break passes, uh, bounce passes through traffic to, you know, RJ Barrett as he's going to the basket. Like, he has this feel for the game, uh, and, 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 you know, these instincts that I think also pop out in the eye test. And that's something that you could totally see if LeBron had, had been, it, it would have been a man among boys in college, uh, for, for one year if he had been a one and done player. And he would have done a lot of the same things, I think. Yeah. I'm having trouble sort of figuring out who his NBA comp is. Is it? I think a lot of people are. No, but I mean, like, is it Draymond? Is it Blake Griffin? Is it, it almost feels like it's Charles Barkley in that you've got a sort of undersized by height, but obviously a big physical presence. Barkley talked about that this weekend during during the games and said... These, oh, did he like that comparison? Yeah, well, he said he was very flattered by the comparison, but uh, Zion is way better yeah, than way, he Yeah, way more talented. <laughs> well, I, I don't think anyone disagrees with you there, Charles. <laughs> but Barkley, I mean, I think that's a great comparison. Uh, Barkley... It's weird. He has always kind of undersold his career, especially as he's been uh, more and more of this, you know, known for being uh, an analyst. There's probably a lot of basketball fans under the age of what, like 28 or something, who have never seen Charles Barkley play. They don't even have a conception of him as a player. They have a conception of him as this kind of comic relief guy on a on a set uh, for TNT. And so it's sort of been forgotten that this guy was crazy good right, as a player right, right. also and and especially by the advanced stats if you look at it and so if he if Zion Williamson turns into a Charles Barkley type career that's like an MVP type player a Hall of Fame player that would be fantastic even a Blake Griffin like a shorter Blake Griffin I don't know it it Saying that out loud makes it sound like it's a little bit of a, a backhanded, you know, yeah. comparison for Zion. But Blake Griffin has had a great career too. But I do think you're right, Jeff, that it's like tough to find uh, an appropriate uh, comparison for Zion because he is so unique. We haven't seen someone who is sort of undersized but also has the crazy athleticism, has the wide variety of skills, and just has these efficiency numbers. According to Ken Pomeroy's numbers he is averaging 131 points per 100 possessions when he is the decider on a duke possession that's Mm -hmm. crazy Mm -hmm. Uh, especially when the uh, ncaa average is around 100 points per 100 possessions here's a list from kenpom.com of the most similar seasons to zion williamson's 2019 you have jalil okafor's 2015 duke (laughs) connection there kevin loves 2008 kind of see that a little Mm -hmm. bit but far more athletic than kevin love uh josh jackson's 2017 you have another dookie in wendell carter's 2018 and then you have dewan blair's 2008 which is another like oh undersized statistical monster in college but again not the same level of athleticism so it's almost like he's taking bits and pieces of you know the statistical production from some guys and the athletic you know eye test numbers from other guys and melding them together into like one prospect which i don't think we've seen before the big thing for him is the the shooting numbers you know he's only hitting 65 percent of his free throws this season uh and 33 percent of his three pointers there's been some research that shows that free throw percentage in college is as or more predictive of pro three-point shooting than uh 
three-point shooting itself in college. And so that is sort of the only red flag there, especially as the game becomes more and more three-point centric. But then you look at the athleticism and you look at the wingspan, which uh, to counter with research, wingspan, I think, is a better measurement of your tr- you know effective height how mm. tall you play sure. in the NBA than height and Draymond Green is a great example of right. that great wingspan he can guard five different positions and is amazing and Zion has the potential to do that too well, so John Morant and Murray State are out of the tournament, bounced by Florida State in the second round. But Duke lives on after barely an exciting game against uh, Taco Fall and UCF. Duke, in our model, still has a 20% chance uh, to win it all. Jeff, how do you like those odds? I'm not going to like hold that game, uh, the UCF game against them. I-, I think we've seen this a lot. Like A team will have like a scare very early. In the- I think you actually almost need to have that. I think the teams that go on runs tend to get that out of their system. But I think the way their region sets up, um, Michigan State hasn't looked that um intimidating either so i i do think they'll at least get to the final four yeah if um if duke beats virginia tech and michigan state beats lsu duke would have a 70 percent chance of beating michigan state and making to the final four according to our model so it seems you're right that it's set up reasonably well and i haven't i haven't thought that virginia tech's looked very good actually in no. the two wins though they are a sneaky pick for the final four so I'm told. you know the sneaky picks are really what we're, yeah. we're yeah, in yeah. it for forget about Absolutely. the dukes i know we're in it for the oregons and virginia techs the num the four number one seeds still have the best um probability of winning it all which is sort of i mean i guess that's the chalk of this bracket well right? yeah and the only thing that i can think of that probably didn't break in duke's favor is that None of the other, you know, top seeds, not right. just in, uh, certainly in their region, but also if you look at um, the the East that Duke is in is paired with the West in the national semifinals and seeds one through four are the Sweet 16 entrants in that region as well. So you sort of have on that side of the yeah. bracket alone. It's all perfect one chalk. through four Amazing. perfect chalk. Yeah. And, and so usually, you know, one of these top seeds, uh, especially the number one overall seed, will at least have some upset uh, happen at some point, whether it's in their bracket or in the adjoining one that makes life easier for them. Uh, And in this particular case, it's just all top seed. Now, you could say, oh, well, you know, those are stronger teams that might take out a Michigan or a Gonzaga that then they would be able, Duke would be able to face a lesser team in the final four. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I think it does sort of serve to to reduce their odds because right now uh, they're at 20% mm-hmm. uh, to make it. And I think, what do we have them at? Like 19% going into the tournament to, to win the championship. So their odds of winning have not really budged almost at all since right. uh, Selection Sunday. And usually you see through vir- by virtue of some of these um, upsets that happen down the, the bracket – uh, the number one overall favorite does get at least some kind of boost from being able to face lesser competition. Not so in this case. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's still a lot of good basketball to be played. I'm looking forward to it. All right, well, let's move on to our rabbit hole of the week. So at 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, but some don't. We want to end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. 
This week, the rabbit hole belongs to Neil. As part of this wonderful week in sports <laughs> that in a seven-day span saw Selection Sunday, uh, Mike Trout's extension, mid-podcast for those who listened last week, <laughs> that was great. Uh, we live-blogged the first two rounds of the NCAA tournament. And then on Sunday, as Duke was poised to potentially lose to UCF, Rob Gronkowski fires up his Instagram and decides to, you know, kind of put out a little uh, uh, message into the world that he's retiring from the Patriots, uh, one of the all-time great tight ends. Uh, And so as we're scrambling to uh, put together a story on Gronk uh, on Sunday night, uh, me and Mike Salfino, one of our contributors, uh, were kind of looking at some stats and found that, you know, Gronk is almost underappreciated for his, uh, you know, if you just look at his yards and catches and touchdowns, you know, in a, in a vacuum, it's like, yeah, these are great numbers, Hall of Fame numbers, especially considering his age. But if you look at on like a per target basis or a per play basis, he sort of emerges as not just one of the most efficient tight ends ever, but maybe the most efficient receiver full stop wide receiver or tight end that we've ever seen uh and and one of the big numbers there was he's averaged 9.9 yards per target over his career so when tom brady threw to rob gronkowski on average he picked up 9.9 yards and that includes incomplete passes that includes everything right that's the number one in NFL history uh, for the years that we have target data, which goes back to 1992. Uh, So for the full salary cap era, that's better than Julio Jones. That's better than Deshaun Jackson noted, you know, deep threat receiver, Michael Irvin. Well, all of these guys on this list there, you'd have to go down to number 10 on the list, by the way, to get another tight end in Travis Kelsey, who I think is a little bit of like a, you know, influenced by Gronk and, and sort of a Gronk esque uh, weapon at tight end. Uh, And so, Another number that we came across for Gronk was, so when Tom Brady targeted Rob Gronkowski, his passer rating was 124.7, which even in today's inflated numbers, that would be, I think, ahead of uh, Aaron Rodgers uh, for the greatest season of all time. If you just made a season of throwing nothing but passes to Rob Gronkowski. Brady's passer rating when throwing to anyone else, and they've had other good receivers over that span uh, of Gronk's career, mm-hmm. is 96.8. So even for the greatest quarterback of all time, maybe we could debate that Oof. at some point, I think Brady's the greatest, um, he, he, he raises the greatest quarterback of all time's passer rating by 30 points when, when he is throwing to That's amazing. Gronk. And that doesn't even get into Gronk as a blocker who profootballfocus.com frequently graded as the best blocking tight end in the game. Uh, and Bill Belichick has compared to Mark Bavaro, which for Belichick, that is the highest praise, uh, <laughs> the great Giants, uh, tight end because he liked Bavaro to be able to be used as a receiver or a blocker, uh, and that that versatility is everything to Belichick in a tight end. Mm-hmm. So basically, you can look at Gronk in any different description of, of the job of playing tight end, and you will find a stat in which he is either the best of all time among tight ends or, you know, near the best and could be the best among receivers. And I think that that speaks to how almost underappreciated he has been as a factor in this sort of post-Randy Moss, the latter part uh, of this Patriots dynasty, which, as we've written about, is also the greatest of all time. Right, right, right. So Gronk is 29. 
Is he a Hall of Famer? Oh, yeah. He has to be, right? Definitely. Without a doubt. Even with how young he is? Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of interested. Uh, He's a no-brainer to me just because of the position. I mean, and how much he contributed to changing that position. And also just what a unicorn he was. Like, there really hasn't been a... In in so many ways, is he a (laughs) unicorn, too. Um, But there really hasn't been a player like him. I mean, the way he sort of just caused so many different matchup problems for defense. You know, I think some of the most impressive numbers are just how much better the team was when he was on the field and Brady was when he was on the field versus when he wasn't. Because, you know, he was also the world's largest decoy. Right. um, Which opened up so much of that. Other uh, parts of the Patriots passing game, whether they're throwing to the running backs or or Edelman or whatever, um, he, he just was like, a magnet that would absorb all defenders in the vicinity um, and open up areas uh, on other parts of the field. But he's definitely a Hall of Famer. I mean, I, uh, I'm i sort of interested in some of the... Uh, like, is Calvin Johnson a Hall of Famer because mm. he retired early? That's interesting. That one's more interesting to me. Like, I do think it is interesting when these guys have relatively short careers and you have to sort of take them uh, for what they are. Um even though they might have, they're not going to have the same volume stats that a guy who played another four or five years would have. And I think that might be something that we have to kind of grapple with more and more as this generation of players kind of knows the risks mm-hmm. more uh, mm-hmm. of playing football long term. And we've seen a lot of these guys get out. But uh, I wanted to talk about a player who definitely has not gotten out of the game early, and that is Tom Brady, uh, who, as we've talked about in the past, he'll be trying to. Like, he already has the odds stacked against him in terms of trying to be productive at an age in which no other quarterback in history has had a productive season. There have been guys like Warren Moon, for instance, who had good seasons at 41, but Brady's going to be 42 next year, and that's the age in which you can't find (laughs) anybody who has had a functional season, hardly, or a starting season uh, in the NFL at quarterback, and now... He's going to have to do it without his one of his greatest weapons right. of his career. And there will be so many takes, especially if they do their customary lose to the Detroit Lions in week three <laughs> uh, type of thing. Is Brady done? Is Brady falling <laughs> off a cliff? Right. Uh, and they are, will never cease to be a source of takes. And that's right. good for us because we are a hot takedown. <laughs> well, that seems like a perfect way to end this podcast. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. This was very fun. And thank you listeners for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. Remember that this is a new podcast. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe and review and rate the show. It really does help other people discover it. You can also email us at podcasts at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.